You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbird styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. For this week's episode, we're going to be talking about one of my absolute favorite artists of all time and one of the painters who was definitely a very large early influence on my own personal artistic development. Vincent Van Gogh. Now, there was so much great stuff to cover about Vincent Van Gogh, and sadly, a lot of tragic stuff to cover as well, but there was so much material to cover. This is actually going to be my first two-part episode, and this week we're going to focus on his early life and development leading up to sort of his first major work, The Potato Eaters. And for part two, next week we're going to focus on the work he created in France during that mature phase of his career, and specifically, how could we not talk about the Starry Night. I feel like who art Ed? Who art Ed? Mr. Wood, art Ed, me. <laughs> yeah. Either way, it, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me once again today, got my old friend, Chuck Hoff. Thanks for joining us. Oh, you bet. So today we are talking about one of my absolute favorite artists. We're going to actually make this a two-parter. Um, we're talking about Vincent van Gogh, and we're going to start off with sort of his early life. So to get us started, he was born March 30th, 1853 in, and I'm never going to pronounce this correctly, Groot Zundert. Um, he was from, he's from the Netherlands. He's a Dutch painter and he Grew up in a predominantly Catholic province, but his father was a minister in the Dutch Reformed Church. Vincent was a common family name. I I feel like all these artists, there must have been something in like the 19th century where it's just like everybody ran out of name ideas because like I was just doing Salvador Dali and Salvador Dali's like older brother was named Salvador Dali and um, like that was a like a common name, Vincent. Um, was the name of his grandfather and a brother who was stillborn a year before the famous Vincent van Gogh's birth. Um, So Vincent, the grandfather, was an art dealer, and he had six sons, and three of them became art dealers as well. So it seems like it was an artistic family. Um, You know, the van Gogh family and the Vincent van Goghs were all sort of in the arts. And I can remember, you know, when we're naming our own children, 
And if the child wasn't named after the grandfather or it wasn't John, my grandmother was like, so it's Brayden. She goes, where did the root word come from? What does it mean? You know? And she goes, I guess we can accept that. And it was just kind of this idea that everything, you know, came in a circle, you know, like we were just going to go ahead and grab the past with our names. And now, you know, she has passed, but this is, you know, 20 years ago when she was in her 80s. Yeah, I guess it's just a different mindset. I mean, yeah, I guess like it it almost feels like back in the day, names had to be an homage to somebody. You know, it had to be a, a continuation of a family line and lineage, whereas like that's the exact opposite of my mindset when I was like naming my kids. It was like I wanted a name with no baggage. You know, I wanted something <laughs> unique and something different and, you know. Well, I'm, um, I'm a junior, so I can understand the baggage. You just, you kind of want to separate yourself from <laughs> any financial failures your you know predecessor may have had because it, it could come back to haunt you. <laughs> well, I, I was, I was more like thinking like, I wouldn't want to accidentally name a kid Adolf or something, you know, like you don't want to, you don't want to come to a discovery late. So it's like, I, I remember with both my kids looking at, at like history, were there any famous people with those names? And it's like, was anyone famous in a bad way? You know? Well, and you know, today and, and, and the children listening to the podcast, <laughs> young adults listening to podcast would appreciate when you named your girl, Alexa, you had no idea. <laughs> yeah. But Alexa, please listen to the latest episode of Who Arted. <laughs> so um, I guess back to what we're actually here to talk about. Vincent Van Gogh, the, the now famous and most famous Vincent Van Gogh. Um, he was said to have been like a really sort of pensive and thoughtful child. He was initially taught by his mother and a governess. So, I mean, when you think about that in that time, his family was reasonably okay financially to be able to afford that kind of stuff. Um, and then he went to the village school in 1860, around, you know, seven years old. So he's like first grader. Um, and then he went to a boarding school in 1864 and he was unhappy in the boarding school i i don't think i've ever heard a story about anyone who was happy being sent to a boarding school um but they then sent him to a different boarding school in like 1866 and it said he just like felt like he was abandoned he said he felt like he was miserable there um but he did show an an aptitude for art um his mother taught him at first and then like you know, he continued in the boarding school in Tilburg, like he's in kind of middle school. And he learned from uh, Constant Cornelius. I cannot pronounce this name. Oh, that's Who's, why I said, that's why you Who's can Who's edit Mons? it later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was like Constant Cornelius Huismans or Huismans. I don't speak other languages. Ugh. Constant Cornelius Huismans. Sounds pretty good. I mean, I don't even have a language. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like in his boarding school, his art teacher was basically a reasonably successful artist in Paris before he was like a teacher there um, and probably also a little bit concurrently. But he was known for his rejection of the common sort of technique and favored 
impressions of objects in nature. And while it's said that like Vincent was miserable and not really devoting much to his studies at that time, with sort of like the benefit of hindsight, I have to think that that art teacher had a little bit of an influence on him because like, you know, sort of fate, like, rejecting a little bit of the academic technique and favoring the impressions and common objects and nature that feels like it's going to come up again later in this episode and you know like i said he was not happy in the boarding school and he left when he was like 11 years old um he just kind of abruptly went home he described his childhood as austere cold and sterile Although I kind of feel like if you asked any middle schooler, they would probably have some description of that because that is the most, (laughs) you know. Well, I think, you know, if you if you think about it, having so many siblings, you think, am I ready to start my career? You know, am I ready to start life or am I still, you know, attached to my mother or need to find out more about my feelings and my identity? Uh, So when you meet you know, professional art teacher from Paris, and he's talking about reproducing, expressing, you know, different objects he has on a table. I can see him being either just being driven from, you know, where he really wants to be. I don't know if he's, is he hanging on? Is he trying to figure himself out? And he's been shipped over to boarding school. So I'd have to agree with Vincent. I don't know how many kids can, you know, I mean, today anyway, would be able to to pull that off, you know, just be shipped away and already funneled into what you're going to do. And I know this was more, you know, what they did in this time, but I don't know if every child, you know, just gripped that reality. And was there a status? Like, you know, did the family expect a lot from Vincent? Yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting thing. Like, um, I mean, I think 100% you're right. Even in that time, like at any time, 10, 11 years old, being shipped off to a boarding school seems like it would be a difficult thing. Um, like I I wouldn't have been prepared for that at all at, at, at that age, you know, just to be away from the family for, for that amount of time. Um, but yeah, his his family did seem to have like they were very very supportive of him, and they did recognize quite a bit of his his brilliance. Because one of the things that comes up throughout this narrative of his life story is his family was rallying around and supporting him and giving him opportunities um, throughout his life mm-hmm. to the to the very end, and and arguably afterwards because it was. Um, he, you know, after his his death, it was his sister in law who um, really preserved his legacy and built his legacy um, because he he had really very little artistic success in his during his lifetime, um, and so I, I guess you know, eighteen sixty nine, his uncle again, family supporting him, his uncle gets him a job as an art dealer. Um, because I guess at that time, 16 years old, ready to go out and start your career. Um, but he was apparently pretty good at that job. He transferred to London and and like at 20 years old, he's earning more money than his father. He's making a good 
reasonable living for himself at at the time, you know, 20 years old, that's most today a lot of people aren't even quite yet starting their careers. They're still in school. Um, and this was a happy time for for Vincent. Um, his sister-in-law later said that was the best year of his life, which I think is kind of a sad, like, I mean, great that he was finding that, that success early, but also kind of sad that he peaked that early. Um, and that, that happy period didn't really last because, um, you know, there was some unrequited love and he became really isolated after that and he became much more religious. One of the things that I really noticed is Vincent van Gogh seemed to be that type of person who was all in on something. And that's probably why he found so so much success early on as an art dealer. He was probably pouring himself into his work and then when he found religion, I guess didn't really find religion because he probably always had religion in his life growing up, the son of a minister. But he really dove him, dove into that. And, you know, he he tried to become a minister himself. Um, but I guess I'm jumping ahead a little bit because 1875, he's still an art dealer. He transfers to Paris. But he becomes a little bit like – dissatisfied or finds it distasteful how art is being commodified which i i find like a really ironic stance for an art dealer um and probably explains why he was only in that job for another year but again it gets at this thing of he seems to be all about like that purity of expression and like just diving right into into it and wanting things yeah, like I say, I, I feel like it's about a it's a purity test almost. I yeah. you know I feel like he's a leader of his time. Like um, th- this is a child, you know, I, my own children. But this is a this is an instance where you know you have a conversation with with a student, and you say, you know, leadership is a very lonely place, and leadership is usually based on a pretty solid um, set of convictions and you know, messaging and things that you just really believe in. And that's what struck me with reading his history was there were several times, you know, these passes in his life where he'd hit an intersection and he, like you said, would dive fully into something. And then only to find out that he wasn't going to sell out. Like I can be a dealer. I can make more than my father and I can really sell everything or anything, but I just can't like, my beliefs are that, um, you know, what I'm, what I'm selling here is a lie or I'm grouping these paintings up and I'm not feeling as if the, I'm selling the message correctly. Um, whatever it was, he had this like pause and he knew I need to go in a different direction because I'm selling out. Yeah. And I think, I think that's part of why the Van Gogh narrative is so appealing to so many people is because he was uncompromising in his beliefs and he was an idealist. Um, you know, when in this next phase, after being an art dealer, after walking away from a successful or potentially successful career as an art dealer, he dove into, into religion and he's not just like studying for the, the exams, which he failed twice. 
um, he's living the life because, you know, while a lot of people are focused on the, the theology and, and, and the, what the words say, he is, he was like giving up his comfortable lodgings to a homeless man. And he stayed in a hut sleeping on a straw bed. He was, you know, kind of embracing the the people who were in the fringe in the fringes of society. And he was doing what he could to help his fellow human beings. And people sort of thought this behavior was beneath the dignity of priesthood. And so you know he he didn't make it in the in the realm of theology he didn't he didn't get gain entrance into the schools and he did not make it as a missionary i'm surprised because 150 years later you can see some of the same you know um perspectives and you know some of the hypocrisies you know when people say we 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 have to take care of the poor um, and yet not everybody believes that, um, and, and how we do that. And so, um, no, I was, I looked at it and I said, this is a reoccurring theme. And w- yeah. when you see something so far past, you know, 150 years ago, it's hard to believe that that can, um, you know, cycle through so many generations. And here we are today. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think ultimately there's, there's sadness to the fact that it is a recurring theme. Um, but Vincent van Gogh, like like so many other people throughout history, he seemed to want to do what he could to better people's situations. Like I said, even if it was for just one person giving up his lodgings to someone who needed it more than he. Um, and I think that's admirable. And like I say, I think that's why – that's why he's such a compelling figure. That's why, you know, people who kind of know about Vincent van Gogh and his story, it's just like, you know, you see his work and you think of him and it's just like a, oh, Vincent, you know, poor Vincent. Um, but his brother, Theo, who was like his biggest supporter throughout his life and his career from what from what I gather um Theo encouraged Vincent to study art under the Dutch artist Willem Roloffs um and he encouraged Vincent to attend the Académie Royale des Beaux-Arts he studied anatomy modeling perspective at the academy um and so Vincent was getting some formal academic training at that time. And when I say that time, I'm talking like around 1880. By 1885, he was ready to start showing his work. So there was, I guess, some interest from an art dealer in Paris. And Theo asked him, like, are you ready to exhibit? And during the period like leading up to that, he created numerous still life drawings. I think like around 200 paintings and the thing that really strikes me about this time period, like his early works, is it's so dark. I mean, and I mean that literally. It's just dark. Um, the mood also tends to be quite somber, but like the paintings 
are not what most people think of when they think of his his works. His most famous works would be from his later period when he was like in in Arles and everything like that. That's when he was doing the sunflowers and stuff like that. Um, in this time period, he's doing like the skull smoking a cigarette. I mean, which which feels so much like the I I don't know. I feel like this is his emo phase. <laughs> you know. No doubt. And I and I do wonder too, you know, does he start his work, you know, at seven o'clock? Does he start painting late? You know, is that because everything, you know, sunset, you know, you're going, you know, you're basically painting by candle um or a lantern. And so I'm thinking like, is he in that mood already? You know, and does he think about authenticity more than he thinks about um, you know, how bright his paints look, you know, because, and I know we'll start talking about the potato eaters, Yeah, but, but I couldn't help but think, you know, some of this is so authentic. And so he must've been a little bit surprised by how, the reaction. You know, people are like, are you kidding me? Like, you know, we need to get some mental health now or we know mental health, you know, um, because something's not right. And he's probably thinking to himself, like, this is exactly the way I saw it. Well, yeah. And I mean, he is pretty far north also, like in Europe. I mean, the days, especially like in the winters and stuff, the days would be quite, quite short and, you know, getting darker and longer and all of that sort of stuff um, compared to when he was in the south of France and things, you know, literally brighter in the yellow house. But I, I guess, yeah, we should get into the potato eaters. This is from 1885, and this is one of his sort of – this is one of his better-known early works. Um, Vincent sort of wrote to Theo thinking, like, Theo's not doing enough to sell his work. And Theo's response was, it's not bright and colorful like the Impressionist's work, which was in style at that time. You know, like, this is the time when really, like – Claude Monet and and the other impressionists were were kind of really at their peak in popularity, um, and we see the potato eaters, which is quite a bit different. Although I would say has some stylistic similarities, at least in terms of their conceptual approach. But I, I I'll let you go first yeah. with the analysis. What so, do you think of the piece? Well, you know, very quickly. Uh, made 19 or 1885. Um, it was the only group portrait he would ever make. Uh, it was, um, he stayed away from the full length portrait, uh, by keeping them sitting down. Uh, mm. he spent months studying the heads. So he knew what he wanted for emphasis. So, uh, being a fan of like game of Thrones, this is literally a set right from it, right? The peasants out in the, out in the field. And so um, he positions people authentically. He has the girl off to the side, but she is looking deliberately into the scene. He has extra details in this, this painting that's just, ah, it's spot on, a lantern. Okay, that's very difficult to do, to brighten up this picture a little bit. He sets the clock right around seven o'clock uh, to give you a time stamp. The sun is set. Uh, this is about when they were eating the potatoes. The potatoes are dusty. Uh, the hands 
are, you know, not grimy or anything, but just, you know, you could tell they've just worked out in the field and they're eating whole potatoes. And so when I do this analysis with, with, uh, children and, and students, instantly they go towards the poor. Um, and, and they go towards, you know, like you said, sadness and, and they're, um, they just it, it, like sadness. And it, and it was just such a huge jump, you know, from, they look perfectly happy to me. Right. It just, it, it, to me, they look happy, but the, the colors and the darkness and the dust and the dirt and the, you know, the authenticity of the, the, the moment just makes these kids go, you know, they automatically assume um, that this is a sad piece. Um, well, yeah, I, well, I think you're right. The, the literal darkness of it, um, you know, because it is this very dark neutral palette. There's a, there's a lot of like black mixed with like, you know, raw umber and sienna. And so, you know, it's like that very dark palette um, that makes that lantern shine. But you're right. There's there's not like something that makes them seem objectively sad per se, although they're very clear and clearly not like wealthy and ostentatious. It's not like opulent living, you know, um, the potato eaters. And this is 40 years after the Irish potato famine, right? That was like yeah. eight, 1845, give or take. Um, yeah, I think it started in 45, ended around 50, 51, 52, some, somewhere around there. Um, but like it it feels to, – to me, this feels like just very working class. Um, you know, it's – authentic i think is the word that that you said it this to me feels like it's an authentic portrait of how people lived in that time um what their conditions were like they they didn't have all of the the stuff that we have they're not sitting around the tv one of the things i i really like about this portrait and this arrangement of figures is like they're not all like posed the way that you would. You, you know how when you watch a TV show, everyone sits at the table and it's like they only sit on three sides of the table because they got to make room for the camera. You know, yes. we see the back of somebody's head. They're all like at the table looking at each other and they're kind of looking into frame, which I think is a good compositional guideline. You know, you, you, do, you don't want someone looking off to the side at something that's outside of the picture plane. Um, they're all looking in towards the center. But I think it feels like it feels like a snapshot. Because of the fact that these poses, they're active. They seem like they're in the middle of a discussion um, because of the hand gestures, the way that they're they're pointing, they're reaching, um, because they're not all looking at the viewer. They're looking at the action around them and looking at each other and engaging with each other. Well, and, and <clears throat> like if you're going to sell this painting, you're not selling the best of the society, right? You're selling a card table you know, basically where the food is bigger than the table and it's cramped and it's, um, it's hard to look at. So if I'm rich 
am I buying this or am I looking at this and saying, why are we showing this part of society? Um, and so, but this to me is the most important part. You know, this is, this is what laid all the tiles. You know, this is what basically um, built the society. This is the backbone of the society right here. But I do find that table to be unbelievably small. And, and, and he on purpose, right? Because it fits the size of the room. And then I look at the room and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like, this is what, this is what Disney like obsesses about is recreating little scenes like this. Like I'll walk into a village or something and it'll have everything in his painting basically. And so I find the irony just to be amazing, you know, so many years later that, you know, as a middle-class person, we, we like little nooks like this. We like to recreate, um, you know, stylistically a place like this. Um, and so I think it's spot on. I mean, I, I absolutely love this and I love where he put the light, you know, right above the heads. So, you know, I mean, he, you can think like I've spent several months doing heads. I'm going to make sure the heads are correct. Um, but he did get, he did get killed on, um, the figures themselves that they weren't perfectly staged. Um, and I remember he had so much criticism on the perfection of his figures. And I was thinking, man, they, they totally missed the message, you know, uh, and the fact that that girl is looking into the scene and that every one of those figures are doing something that I can see actually happening in the pose and the way they're doing it. Like if you go to a small you know, restaurant, right? And you have a yeah. small table. This is what you see. You, you see a lot of action and people helping each other and pouring coffee and whatnot. Yeah, and it it absolutely, to me, one of the things I think is really interesting is the criticism that he got or the feedback that he got from Theo was like, look, dude, it's hard to sell your stuff. It's not like the Impressionists. And it's not like the popular impressionists of that day in the color scheme. Um, but as I said before, I think in a lot of ways, sort of thematically or conceptually, this feels like it is in line with a lot of what they were doing because he's capturing that fleeting moment. He's capturing his impression of what was happening around the table. What's the action? And while Monet and, you know, Surratt and the others were focused on the effects of color and light and optics and everything that we would see. And, you know, we had those haystacks at different times of day and different seasons throughout the year and all of that sort of stuff. What, what Van Gogh was giving us was that moment of people interacting, that moment of connection between people as they go to to eat their dinner. You know, to, to take a look through a window and see what that period of time looked like, he, he nailed it. Uh, Vincent nailed it, that is. Yeah, and to me, this feels like the clothing and the meal might be different, but this action and the way that that people are relating to like it feels to me like so many you know family gatherings that that I grew up in where like you know the grown-ups are sitting around the table you know talking about how all the world's problems could be solved if someone would just listen to them you know what I mean oh my god like, it, you know it, yes and stylistically 
like when you look at this and you see the clothes and you see the table small, just look into a, you know, an old photo album in the 1950s and 60s and you will see this identical picture. We didn't live the way we do until recently, you know, until the 90s. But before that, everything was old and worn. I mean, I would say to my parents, I'd say, you know, we had this couch for 35 years, you know, something like that, because it's in every one of our pictures. But we had this small table for so many years and we just made it work. And that's what it reminds me, like everything in this picture is made to work. It's functional. Everything in here is functional. And um, I can appreciate that. You know, there is one, you know, little painting off to the side on the upper part of the wall there. Um, But besides that, everything else has a function. Uh, And I, and, and, you know, there's even an extra little pot. Uh, You know, there's a teapot and then there's probably one for water or soup. But there's one right there on the right in the right corner, but there's spoons above her head. Um, you know, there's that clock I said off to the left. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to look at too. It's not just a picture of, of the people sitting around. Yeah. It's it, like I said, it, it captures this intimate moment sort of warts and all again, a reoccurring theme and, and one that needs to be told. Um, I'm looking at the chair, you know, I'm looking at the chair that he's sitting on and I can see the weave has busted out. Like, He's, he's careful to, to not put a chair that looks like it's brand new. You know, I could just see in the, in the lower left-hand corner, some of the, some of the hay or straw that, that, that is woven to the bottom of that chair where he sits has broken loose. And, and to me, like, that's what I want to see. I want to see where that kettle is on, that iron kettle, that those boards, you know, they have 20 years on them. And that's, that's the study he's done. Like that's, that's Vincent doing a, a, a very deep character study. I don't know how many painters at that time could have pulled this off. Well, yeah, it's those little details that make it true to, uh, it's what, it, it's what gives it that feel of authenticity. Um, even though this was studied, it wasn't, you know, we, we saw numerous sketches and studies to, to lead up to this. Um, but it's not like, um, it's not like those Baroque paintings where it's like, it's models in the artist's studio who are hired to portray a character. This feels like he was observing people who actually lived in these conditions and interacted and, and dressed in this way. And, and, you know, and, and again, just the temperature of the piece, right? So he was very careful that the only heat source is above their head. You know, if heat rises, yeah. that's not doing much to warm the place up at, in, in this moment. But you know what What does is the steam off the potatoes. I love the opposites going on here where they're dressed so warmly, you know, like they're dressed in layers and layers and layers. And there's just some elements of comfort, you know, in this piece where you're, you're, your eyes go to it immediately. And you're like, well, at least they have some warm tea. Yeah, you know, or or at least they have, you know, enough clothes to make it through. But I'm thinking that is going to be a long night. There's no way they're going to rest. You know, they're going to sleep that hard because it just looks so cold. Wow, that's a downer note for that one. I know, but <laughs> it's weird because I could see where people are like, "What in the world are you doing? Like, how can I hang this in my room or in my, you know, in my um, house?" 
when it just reminds me of everything that is difficult in life. It it does kind of feel like, yeah, who is the audience for this piece? Because, you know, the the people who really would connect to it couldn't afford it. Yep. And the people who could afford it don't necessarily want a reminder of how the other half lives. Exactly right. You know what I mean? Um, which I guess probably explains why he had trouble selling it. <laughs> you know? I don't obsess about that. I just really, I, I, for some reason I'm driven to the faces, you know, and the food and the items on the, on the table. And that girl, you know, that girl kind of haunts me a little bit because that's the way the girl would have been. She wouldn't have sat at the table necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe she was, like you said, helping out, she would have eaten earlier or just afterwards, whatever, but she wasn't the main cog in this thing. She wasn't expected to be there. Yeah. And I just, I just keep coming back to, like I said, the, the people sitting around, you know, sort of talking, enjoying their meal. It just, it feels like one of those those sessions of family coming together, talking, sharing their day. Like you say, it, it's, it's another form of a Norman Rockwell. You know, again, I, we can all appreciate, you know, the fact that they can't, they do not have an iPad in front of them, you know, with, yeah. with all of the photos needed to get all the proportions correctly. I mean, this is, you know, and because this is a moment of time, um, you know, I, I can appreciate three months or several months, um, you know, of his work with the faces, yeah, was, you know, the arms and the sitting, you know, yes, that was, that's something they did, you know, they just gathered around the table, you know, and, and the, the other thing maybe in, in parting with this potato eaters discussion, yeah, it is kind of interesting The chair on the right, you know, I, I would say like critically it, it keeps her propped. She's almost standing. Because the chair on the right has a forward lean to it, and it and it and it's having a hard time fitting in this room. Like the room has, it's coming in towards us as a little M.C. Escher, and the chair is leaning forward, and the kettle and the table is permanently anchored in front of her. So I'm like, which way is this going to go? She's going to fall on this child at some point. (laughs) Well, it feels like, it feels like, it feels like a rocking chair that someone like pushed forward. Like, (laughs) and she's got this stern look. Like I personally like to imagine, you know, that girl who's like sitting or standing in the front, it like was walking around the back of the table, pushed that chair forward and now is running away. (laughs) There's a whole lot there. Like, yeah, this is your grandmother in the corner who she's daring everybody in the crowd to even say one word, you know, (laughs) she may take the kettle and just pour it on your lap. Like you could just tell she's the matriarch. She could do whatever she wants, but she's got something going on there. And I'm wrapping it up. I want just a three point rating scale. And where should this hang? The Lou, is this something to look at? The lab, is this something to learn from? Or the Lou, British for bathroom. Yeah, there's a joke in there somewhere. Oh, that's terrible. Probably the Lou. So you feel it's a museum piece? Save it for the ages? I I do. I do. Um, You can have all the, you know, you can have 
most of the really colorful stuff and the bright stuff, the stuff that sells and that there needs to be a time at which we study the eight, the late 1800s and we figure out how the society actually lived. Most of the people. And here it is. Yeah. I, yeah, it gives some good insights in, into, you know, what, what life was like for for a number of people you know there's there's a grit to it that feels real i i put this one in the lab though just because i feel like there's a lot i can learn from it compositionally it's very strong you know he does a lot well but i just i don't like to look (laughs) at it you know like i i and i say this as someone who loves his work um but yeah, there's there's something about it that, like I said before, it's like who is the audience for this for this piece, and what are we getting from it? And I need to find a way to disagree with you. So I'm I'm saying this is one to learn from, um, but I don't want to look at it for the ages. I don't want to see it in the museums. I w- I want happy pictures, you know. No, I understand. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today to talk about some of the great stuff and not so great stuff in Vincent van Gogh's life and his early works. Well, thank you, dude. I do appreciate this. And being especially generous with your time, I will talk to you again next week as we discuss his later works and The Starry Night. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted? If you found this tolerable, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week in the show notes on Twitter at WoodArtEd and on the website whoartedpodcast.com podcast done.